You're listening to The Naked Pravda. This is Medusa's first and only English language podcast, so please don't be shy about recommending us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, and this is a podcast from Medusa, where I typically speak to a handful of experts or activists about an issue that's at the heart of recent reporting by Medusa's own newsroom. As you can imagine, that has limited the scope of this show for the past several weeks to discussions about coronavirus. Coronavirus, coronavirus, COVID-19... I get it. It's a serious issue. It's life or death. It affects us all. We all get it. At least most of us get it. But I'm also sick of it. Not sick with it, thank goodness. I'm sick of it. And I'm also sick of being so damn serious all the time, if you haven't guessed. I'm trying to be serious a lot of the time. But on today's show, on this episode of The Naked Pravda, I've decided to do something thoroughly unserious and totally disconnected from the news cycle. We're going to talk about the 1984 motion picture Red Dawn, a film starring Patrick Swayze and Charlie Sheen about a Soviet invasion of the United States. I wasn't yet two years old when this movie came to the big screen, but it's one of those stupid Cold War features that captivated me later in my childhood, and it's probably responsible to an embarrassingly high degree for the fact that I ever took an interest in Russia at all. This is embarrassing, of course, because the movie is very bad, though I still enjoy watching it very much. And it's embarrassing because it's not really a film about Russia at all, but about the psychotic fantasies inspired by Americans' fear of Russia. Anyway, that's today's show. I'm diving deep into Red Dawn. But I'm not doing it alone. I'm joined by Slava Malamud, a Soviet-born journalist who immigrated to these United States many years ago. Slava writes mostly about sports, but last year, his tweets about the HBO miniseries Chernobyl were something of a phenomenon, even winning retweets from Craig Mazin, the show's creator. An astute observer and a wickedly funny guy, Slava agreed to join me in this look at what could be the greatest or worst, depending on your perspective, vilification of Russians from Hollywood. Now, even though this movie is nearly 36 years old, I figure I still gotta warn you, there are spoilers ahead. Brothers die, Russians get their comeuppance, and the Cuban colonel spares the good guys in the end. And while the third act is glorious indeed, there's nothing in the film that tops the opening prologue, which I will read to you right now. Soviet Union suffers worst wheat harvest in 55 years. Labor and food riots in Poland. Soviet troops invade. Cuba and Nicaragua reach troop goals of 500,000. El Salvador and Honduras fall. Green's party gains control of West German parliament, demands withdrawal of nuclear weapons from European soil. Mexico plunged into revolution. NATO dissolves. United States stands alone. And this is, this is the premise of a movie that came out in uh, 
August 10th, 1984. The very first movie, by the way, in the United States to get a PG-13 rating, which I guess was backlash to the Temple of Doom getting a PG rating. <laughs> and parents were very upset about this, which is amazing to me that they, like in 1984, families, like parents took their kids to the movies, watched Indiana Jones almost get his heart like pulled out of his chest, got really upset, and then three months later, Red Dawn comes out with a PG-13 rating. <laughs> um, but uh, I wanted to know, what were the circumstances when you first saw this movie? I first saw this so shortly after coming to the United States. I, was, I wouldn't say I was about 17 years old. Uh, but I didn't really understand much English back then. And uh, back when I was in the Soviet Union, this movie was not really all that popular. Uh, we loved we loved these movies with these pumped up, larger than life type of characters like Stallone and Schwarzenegger. So it's not Patrick Swayze and Charlie Sheen weren't necessarily up to par there. Uh, but we, we knew about the movie and uh, it was one of those uh, things that was written about in the Soviet media. Like, this is the way that we are portrayed in the Western press and in the Western uh, culture. And uh, American children are taught to fear us, the very benevolent Soviet people. <laughs> so, so when I first saw it, I didn't really know English much. And uh, it, you know, it's not that you really need to know much to understand what's going on. Uh, but I don't really remember it making having much of an impact on me. So what I did now is I rewatched it. It was four dollars well spent on Amazon Prime. <laughs> After the opening credits, Red Dawn doesn't waste much time before introducing the Russians, who parachute onto a high school football field before the five minute mark, and seconds later gun down a school teacher who ventures outside to find out what the hell they're doing. They're invading you, dead idiot. We spend the rest of the movie with a ragtag group of youngsters who hide from the invaders in the woods at first before transforming into a band of guerrilla fighters who raise hell and assert their Americanness against the occupying Soviet, Cuban, and Nicaraguan troops. Later on, we meet a downed Air Force pilot named Lieutenant Colonel Andy Tanner, who is played by an actor with an even manlier name, if you can believe it, Powers Booth, who died in 2017 after a long career in Hollywood. What we learn from Lieutenant Colonel Tanner is that Russian airborne units mounted a first attack against the U.S. disguised as commercial charter flights, coordinating with selective nuke strikes against U.S. missile silos and key points of communication like Omaha, Washington, and Kansas City. The Soviet rockets were a hell of a lot more accurate than we thought, he says. To the south, infiltrators came up illegal from Mexico, Tanner says, in a, in a vision that seems pulled from Donald Trump's nightmares. These illegal aliens infiltrated strategic air command bases in the Midwest <laughs> and opened up the door down here, meaning in the southern border, allowing the Cuban and Nicaraguan armies to roll in, where they were reinforced by 60 Russian divisions. The USSR also sent three army groups across the Bering Strait into Alaska, cut the pipeline, and came down across Canada to link up with their Latin allies. But Uncle Sam stopped their butt cold, says Tanner. I think Putin would probably pay some willing American movie maker to make something like this now, because <laughs> that would play right into his hands. I mean, I mean, this is how they show us. You see, I mean, we're villains. We're horrible. We want to attack America. Uh, yeah, that would, that would definitely feed into, the, into a lot of uh, what, what Russians think about America now. And, uh, you know, as, as, as the enemy. It's not your normal uh, action movie ending. Like the, the good guys win, the bad guys lose. The, the big baddie gets his comeuppance. 
Uh, and actually, in, in the very last scene, if you think about it, they never tell you how the war ended. Like, yeah, I mean, there is the American flag there is fenced off. So the United States has probably persevered, but we don't know how it really ended. Was Did the U.S. keep all of its territory? Did, did the Soviets like, you know, got to get to keep Alaska or something? We don't know. Uh, <laughs> so it's it's kind of off the beaten track a little bit. And, and the bad guy is shown as a worthy adversary. And I think that a lot of Russians uh, just, you know, we like to be perceived as tough and strong and respectable more than we would like to be, you know, perceived as cuddly and warm and, uh, and humane. It's, it, this is not how we view ourselves, but this is how we like to be perceived. But of course, the, uh, the whole, the portrayal of the, of the other Russian characters in the movie is just so characteristic. When it came to portraying Russians in Red Dawn, the film's director, John Milius, who made Conan the Barbarian and co-wrote Apocalypse Now with Francis Ford Coppola, he was pretty open about his bigoted views. A self-described Zen anarchist, gun nut, and apparently once avid surfer, Milius was supposedly the basis for John Goodman's character in The Big Lebowski, Walter Sobchak. In a short featurette added to Red Dawn's DVD release in the late 90s, Milius described the motivation behind a scene in the movie where one of the main antagonists, Cuban Colonel Ernesto Bella, decides not to shoot Swayze and Sheen, the two hero brothers, who at this point in the movie have been mortally wounded anyway. Of course he's going to let them go, because he's Latin. He's not Slavic, Milius explained. He's not as hard and cruel as Colonel Strelnikov. Russians are still one ethnicity or nationality that Americans are perfectly happy to ridicule or make, make like, you know, kind of like cartoon villains out of. What's your reading of this? Because like I've actually, I've talked to a lot of Russians about this because it really comes down, I think, to the differences between how Americans and other nationalities, in this case, Russians, conceive of discrimination or where the kind of boundaries lie in good taste when it comes to, I don't know, either vilifying groups of people or mocking them. And you know, this, this is always a moving target, but it's always been my impression that in the United States, we're so kind of color-coded in our in our hatreds and prejudices that that Russians are just more white people. And so if they talk funny, that's fine. It's just another white person being funny. And that's like, it's like you're, you're punching up, I guess, in the sense that you're not really targeting a vulnerable community. And so that you're not, you're not stepping outside the bounds of, of what Americans would consider to be kind of good taste. But I don't know, how do you, if this movie were released today, how do you think it would play in, in, in Russia? Most of the scenes involving the Russian soldiers in the, in the film, it's, they, they lay it on pretty thick. I mean, they are Nazi-like. I mean, they are, I mean, the uh, civilian reprisals, you know, this is, this is what Nazis did, did in Russia. So on, on that level, that would be extremely offensive to most Russian people in the 80s if they watched it. I mean, this is what was done to us. And you're thinking that we're going to be doing that. Uh, but yeah, and, and it's, of course, then Strenikov comes in and puts the end to all of this. So the implication is it's not all Russians that are evil. It's just the KGB is <laughs> the Dracula figure. What do you think of, of specifically the Russian language in the film? I remember when I watched it before I started studying Russian, I thought to myself, wow, they, these people really sound like they're speaking Russian. <laughs> and I'm now watching it again. <laughs> the, the language is, yeah, obviously pretty crappy. Uh, there isn't a single, uh, properly formulated sentence but if i were to guess and i'm pretty confident in uh, in my supposition here there wasn't a single russian speaker 
in the cast, and I think most of those people were probably Eastern European, just from the way they form their their sentences and from the way they uh, they uh, they deal with grammar. They sound very much like Poles, Czechs, Bulgarians, maybe Romanians who were forced to learn Russian in school and then wound up in the United States. I'm not sure why they couldn't find any actual bona fide Russian speakers. I mean, it's not like there weren't any in Hollywood in 1984. They they did manage to find one for Rocky IV, uh, the ring announcer. And actually, I actually know the guy. But... Uh, <laughs> Rocky IV, of course, happened in the Gorbachev era, so maybe, maybe, maybe in 1984, people were still afraid to do uh, things that were like this outwardly anti-Soviet. Uh, so yeah, the, the, the language is pretty terrible, uh, and it's definitely. And, and if you look at the at the street signs that are grammatically horrendous and misspelled, uh, it bears all the hallmarks of people who know a smattering of Russian but just don't really uh, know how to deal with it from a practical standpoint, and uh, the. Um, the, dial- the dialogues and monologues are all written in uh, that same kind of Eastern European Russian, Bulgarian or Czech Russian. Uh, I thought the best character in the film was uh, was the hunter, the uh, the colonel. Uh, not from the way he speaks, uh, but he's obviously a professional actor, and uh, he looks like a uh, tough guy paratrooper type. He, he, had, he had the look of a Soviet grizzled military officer who's gone through Afghanistan, who's gone through, uh, through hell and back. Uh, the others are like these pudgy, strange characters with lots of facial hair. <laughs> the KGB general or whatever looks like a your standard movie villain just who probably played Dracula his entire life. So that actor, his name is Bill Smith, the guy who played Colonel Strelnikov. During the Korean War, he was actually a Russian intercept interrogator and flew secret missions over the Russian SFSR. And he apparently had both CIA and NSA clearance and like had a whole career planned in the clandestine services, but he went into acting instead and had like apparently a very storied career. Like never, never quite a leading man, obviously, but uh, hundreds of roles and all that stuff. The guy who played uh, the ring announcer in Rocky IV by the name of Serge Levin. Uh, he was actually a hockey agent. He was Pavel Bure's first agent and also a hockey writer. For So I knew him personally. When when they recruited him to play the ring announcer, the idea was that they, they would have a guy who could translate, actually translate in real life what Stallone was saying, but he didn't really know English very well. And to translate what Stallone is saying on the best day is not easy. And when Stallone is is actually pretending to be a to be a beat up boxer. That's even worse. So if you watch that that final scene of the film, you can pinpoint the exact time when uh, when the actor just started making things up. <laughs> just he gave up on translating Stallone, just made things up, and there was nobody else to edit him. Nobody knew Russian, so that's that's how it ran. It's it, so it's it's a very funny scene if you're a Russian speaker during this fight. I've seen a lot of changing. The way you felt about me and the way I felt about you. In here, there were two guys killing each other. But I guess that's better than 20 million. So I думаю, что это лучше, чем даже 20 миллионов долларов. 
If I can change, я думаю, что каждый тоже изменился сегодня. And you can change. Вы можете измениться. Everybody can change. Каждый может измениться. In 1990, a journalist and former film producer named Peter Bart wrote a book called Fade Out, The Calamitous Final Days of MGM, where he revealed a lot of fascinating details about the making of Red Dawn, like the fact that director John Milius' $1.25 million contract had a clause that required the studio to buy him a gun of his choice. The movie was initially titled Ten Soldiers, and it hilariously was supposed to be an anti-war, almost art film, about a once-benign band of youngsters being brutalized by war in a kind of Lord of the Flies situation, what Peter Bart called a touching parable about the brutalization of the innocent. That's not how it ended up, obviously. It's more like a very long uh, Reagan re-election ad <laughs> than it is a commentary on what the Soviet Union is like or what Soviet people are like. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, the, the U.S. obsession with guns, especially, it's, it's just, you don't really, it, it's not really coded very, um, intricately in there. It's, it, they just scream it right at you. The very, one of the very first scenes has the bumper stickers, you'll, bumper sticker, you'll, you'll pry it out of my cold dead hands, right? After which a Soviet soldier literally pries it out of an American citizen's cold dead hands. Uh, not very subtle as, as, as metaphors go, really. Well, and there's also the scene where after the initial invasion, Colonel Ernesto Bella, who's leading the kind of like sh shock troops that have invaded this small town, he asks one of his subordinates to go get him the local gun registry records so that they can round up all the people, all the gun owners and you know, basically line them up and shoot them or whatever, which is, again, like a wonderful NRA propaganda. It's, it's, it's amazing stuff. I mean, it's permeated with a lot of right-wing ideology. And, of course, it would play great with the uh, Make America Great Again crowd today. <laughs> the whole Mexican border thing is uh, <laughs> very pertinent. The right-wing ideology in Red Dawn didn't happen by accident. Not only did director John Milius bring his patented Zen anarchism to the picture, but he then reworked the script while holed up at the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C., working alongside Alexander Haig, who'd recently resigned from the Reagan administration and joined the MGM United Artists Board of Directors. Haig was also a former chief of staff under Nixon and Ford, and he spent years as NATO's supreme commander. John Milius was in hog heaven, says Peter Bart. Not only would he be directing a movie about the military, but he'd even have his own distinguished military advisor. In popular culture, at least, Alexander Haig's claim to fame in history is that he suggested at a press conference after the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan in 1981 that he was then the acting president. I am in control here, Haig told reporters, later arguing that he was merely functionally in control of the White House in Vice President Bush's absence. Anyway, this is the guy who apparently had a major hand in Red Dawn's screenplay exerting so much influence over the movie that director John Milius supposedly complained at one point that he was nervous about being maneuvered into a flag-waving, jingoistic film. Apparently, the, the Pentagon was sort of involved in very early talks about this film, or they were at least approached about helping film it like by providing like flybys and stuff like that so that they could get footage of military hardware and things like that. But after they saw the script... They bailed on the whole thing because they they apparently decided that it was Russian Cuban infiltration was was um, d totally impossible and that the story suggested American weakness and so they refused to participate. So it's a, it's kind of funny because it 
you know, you, it is certainly a, an American militaristic jingoistic film, but the Pentagon didn't like it because it, it made it, it the the very premise of of a Soviet Cuban alliance being able to do so much damage to the United States was, you know, unthinkable to the to the brass. And so it's it's the movie is special in that it, it really does find a way to kind of offend just about everybody, I guess. To me, it, I, I read more about. Uh how Americans viewed themselves in 1984. Growing up in the Soviet Union, to what degree was did this kind of this the sentiment, the American sentiment that's that's like you know very palpable throughout Red Dawn? Was there ever like, in your opinion, did like vilification of Americans ever approach the sentiments that are on display in Red Dawn in any kind of like popular culture available in the Soviet Union? Yes and no. I mean, it's I think. You have to consider the fact that the Soviet movie industry operated under a different set of constraints. We couldn't show a lot of outright gore and blood and, and, and uh, gratuitous violence in the Soviet movies. So that's why the uh, Soviet propaganda films that you know dealt with armed conflict were not as graphic and not as poignant, maybe, in their depictions of evil, unless it, it's, it was the Nazis. That was, that's where anything went. Also, I think they were a little bit more mindful about, uh, since they were under government control, and they were mindful about not upsetting anybody high up. I mean, so while you're making this movie about horrible evil Americans, there might be a new agreement being prepared. And of course, your movie is not going to go anywhere because it might disrupt international relations and everything is controlled by the government. So there was no freedom to do that stuff. I mean, Russians and Americans both get their kicks out of overtly patriotic you know, violent militaristic films, I guess. Is that fair to say? Do you think that this kind of, this kind of film, this kind of filmmaking that we see in Red Dawn, is there like a universal kind of like pleasure and wish fulfillment there? Or is it, is it distinctly American? I'm not sure it's distinctly American, but it's definitely to that degree, it comes from the type of uh, creative freedom that the Western nations allow, because, you know, when, with freedom comes freedom. I mean, people, it's not just sane people who are going to voice their opinion and their vision. It's also going to be people who love guns and who love survivalist uh, ideology and who uh, imagine the world where people like them become heroes. Uh, in the Soviet Union, uh, there was a lot of films about the war, about the revolution, about the civil war, and all of them were made most of them, not all of them, most of them were made uh, with the slant of, you know, portraying uh, heroic sacrifice and patriotism, but not necessarily reveling in the gore and the blood and, uh, and the death. And I think that we, we really discovered how much we love that crap once we discovered illicitly made pirated copies of American blockbusters. <laughs> 1980s was the the 1980s was really a golden age for America, for Russian teenagers, myself included, including uh, discovering how much we loved seeing Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, chainsawing people into bits. <laughs> uh, the only type of films they, sh I mean, we had these uh, illegal, uh, they called them video salons, which was basically some dude's basement. I mean, you, you, you went into, uh, you went into some apartment building into a basement uh, into a basement room somewhere you paid one ruble to a guy with tattooed fingers and like seven of you would sit around in a semicircle and he would pop a, VC a vhs tape into a <laughs> into, into a into a vcr and uh, you would 
you'd watch either Stallone or Schwarzenegger or Bruce Lee or uh, or something to that account. You know, it, it's it, lots of post-apocalyptic stuff. The first American film I ever saw was The Running Man, which definitely revels in gratuitous violence and uh, <laughs> and and snappy one-liners. Nobody beats Schwarzenegger for snappy one-liners. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock. On today's show, we got a little weird and spent the whole episode talking about the 1984 American film Red Dawn. My guest was journalist Slava Malamud, who brought the eagle eye he focused last year on HBO's Chernobyl miniseries to this Cold War Hollywood classic about a group of teenagers holding their own against the Soviet military. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa, our first English language show, and I hope You'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Thank you for listening and come back soon. Mm-hmm.